Listening to sermons as we go about our days, driving around or doing our work, is a perfect reminder of our Lord's promises and of His mercies. This is the mission of Upper Room Media. To make the Word of God accessible to anybody and everybody. Father and Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So today we're going to talk about the sacrament of priesthood. Usually when I give this topic, I usually take only one angle of it, which talks about, you know, Protestants and Orthodox and all this stuff. This time around, I'm going to tackle it from very different angles, maybe seven of them, but I will not go very deep in each one, okay? So the topic is about the same length, hopefully even a bit shorter, but I will tackle a few things. But just remember that every angle I tackle, I can go even deeper, much deeper in it, okay? But obviously, since we want to cover it in a different way, we'll do it this way this time around. Okay, so we're going to look at theologically who is a priest or what is a priest in terms of comparative theology. Also, this is the part where what the Protestants say, how they see things versus how we see things. We look at confession. Okay, look why the priest needs to be a male, the fatherhood of the priest, why we call the priest Abuna or father. And some things that have to do with the rituals of the church that help us express that priesthood of God. And then the idea of the word theocracy, if you understand what that means, and the authority the priest has in the church. Again, sounds like a lot, but I'm not going to go deep into every one of them. So like you don't have to worry much. Okay. So first of all, from a theological perspective, often you would hear things like the priest is a symbol of Christ. The priest is not a symbol of Christ. You hear something else, Kiro, that says that the priest represents Christ. The priest also does not represent Christ. So he's not a symbol of Christ. He does not represent Christ. Yes, he might be those things, but that's not who a priest is. It's deeper than that. Okay? The priest makes... Christ present. Again, the priest makes Christ present. That's the mystery of the priesthood. So again, the priest is not Christ. So I'm not saying the priest is Christ. No, the priest is a human being who happens to sin and has his own father of confession and so on. But he's not only a representation or a symbol of Christ. He actually, the mystery of the priesthood is he makes him present. What does that mean? It means, you know, so I'll give you a story as an example. There was, so there's this monk who was a very spiritual monk, okay, in one of the monasteries in Egypt. He saw this other monk praying the liturgy. And as he saw the other monk praying the liturgy, you know, at some point in the beginning in the Thanksgiving prayer, like the priest has like the, the wine and he's pouring the wine into the chalice and then the water. And as he's doing this, he sees, like, so his eyes opened and he saw something spiritual there, and he saw the hands of Christ superposed on the hands of the priest. So the priest makes Christ present, okay? Another example that I give often is the idea of the Eucharistic meal, the Last Supper, that Christ was sitting 2,000 years ago with his disciples. So Christ is sitting, he has the bread in his hand, and he breaks and he says, "Take, eat this as my... My, my what? Body. body, right? So 
Whose body is this? Is it the body of the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit? The Son. Okay. Does the Father have a body? No, nor does the Holy Spirit. Okay, thank you. You passed that test. Okay, so, so you have the Son of God. The Son of God is sitting as a human being. He's incarnate. And he's holding the bread and he says, this is my body. So this also is the body of who? So the Son is sitting and he's holding the body of, of the Father? Of the Son? Of the, he's holding the body of who? The Son. He says, Take it, this is my body. So you have, this is the mystery. God is everywhere. But in that mystery, obviously he's present in his humanity. And he's, he makes his presence also in the bread. That this also becomes his own body. That's exactly what happens every single liturgy. So liturgy is a reliving of that moment. So you have the Son of God who happens to be inside the priest. And the Son of God in the priest takes the, the bread and he makes it the body and he transforms it and so he holds himself in a sense. Okay, So that's why only a priest can pray a liturgy. It's not about the rituals. It's not about what you actually say in terms of verbiage. It has to do with the Son of God Himself being there, He is the one praying the liturgy, and He is the one who is transforming the bread into His own body. Does anybody have any authority to do this other than Christ? Or the Holy Trinity? No. So any random guy, any random girl, if they know the liturgy by heart, and they go and they dress up like Abuna, and they put the Emma on or whatever, and they try to like play this like theatrical piece in a sense, and they pray a liturgy, nothing will happen. Because Christ is not there transforming his bread into his body. Can you guys focus with me, please? If you don't want to be here, don't be here. Okay? So he's transforming his bread, that bread into his body. So theologically speaking, it is, the priest is the presence of Christ. You guys get this? So I cannot say he is Christ because he's not God. But I cannot say he only symbolizes Christ. Any Christian can symbolize Christ. Any Christian represents Christ. Yeah, maybe the priest represents to a higher degree, but that's not what the priesthood is. The reason why God blows into the disciples that will see and he gives them the Holy Spirit of the priesthood is to make a mystery in them, which makes him present. Okay? That's why in John 20 it says what? So this is the day of the resurrection. How many days before Pentecost is this? Huh? How many days before Pentecost is this? Please, someone answer. Please, please, someone answer. 50, thank you. Okay. And how is it? Okay. 50, okay. So, the day of Pentecost is when the Holy Spirit descends on the church. Do we receive the Holy Spirit more than once? No. Right? So if I am a Christian, receive the Holy Spirit, and live a life of sin, when I come back, am I rebaptized? No. I just confess. So every human being receives the Holy Spirit once. Yet here, 50 days prior to Pentecost, on the day of resurrection itself, in the evening, Christ appears and to only the 12 disciples. 
or the 12 apostles, okay? He breathes on them. So he blows in their mouth in the same way when I was ordained a priest, he blew in me, okay? To receive the Holy Spirit. So the priest received the Holy Spirit a second time because it has a different function. Not to become a Christian, but to receive the mystery of the priesthood. Does Christ give the Holy Spirit just for fun? Of course not. Okay, so there's something huge happening here, which is the mystery of the priesthood, which makes Christ present inside of that person. Okay, And that's the difference between what we call an apostle in the Bible and a disciple. So a disciple is synonymous with the word Christian. Right? An apostle has the priesthood of Christ and is a witness of Christ and he went and preached in the first century. But here, our objective is that he has the priesthood of Christ. So when if I speak about the 12, can I say there are 12 disciples? Can I say there are 12 disciples? Yes. Are they Christian? Yes. That's why we call them sometimes 12 disciples. Can I say there are 12 apostles? Yes, because they were given the Holy Spirit of the priesthood. Right? Sometimes we get this confused. When you talk about the 70, the 72 disciples or apostles, did they have, so say Mark, the evangelist, is one of the 72 disciples slash apostles, the one that came to Egypt to preach, right? And he's the founder of the Coptic Orthodox Church. Is he an apostle? Yes. Yes, he's the first pope of the church. Can I also say he's a disciple? Yes. So both the 72 and the 12 were apostles and disciples. Okay, you guys get that? So they have the priesthood of Christ. Now, if I look into comparative theology now, okay? So comparative theology has to do with orthodox understanding versus, you know, Catholics, or, but in this case, it's more the Protestant world, okay? So there are Old Testament prophecies that speak about the priesthood in the New Testament. Okay, so I'll give you an example. In Malachi 1, it says this, For from the rising of the sun, even though it's going down, my name, which is the name of God, right, shall be great among the Gentiles. Who's a Gentile? Someone raise your hand. Who's a Gentile? Quick. Yes. Hmm. A non-Jew. Forget. So as Egyptians, we were... Gentiles, okay? So from the rising of the sun to its going down, meaning from the east to the west, the name of God shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering. So when it comes to incense, there are many types of incense, meaning when pagans used to pray, did they have incense in the rituals? Yes or no? Yes. When the Jews prayed in the temple, did they have incense? Yes. So can this be a Jewish incense? That's a very easy question. Okay, okay, let's start with the easy one. Can this be a pagan incense? Can this be a pagan incense? No, it cannot be a pagan incense. Why not? Why not? Why not? It says what? My name. Okay, so, so it's not pagan. It's, the, it's incense offered to God Almighty. Okay? Now, can it be a Jewish incense? 
And I thank God I'm bald. Honestly, like this is a joke that I repeat all the time. I really thank God I cannot pull my hair. Okay. Why is this not a Jewish incense? John, save me. Very good. So it's among the Gentiles, not the Jews. Number one, right? Number two, where would the Jewish incense take place? In the temple. The temple is where? Do they have many temples? The Jews? Only one which happens to be in Jerusalem. But here it says from the rising of the sun to its going down. From the east to the west, all of the Gentiles will offer incense in my name. This is the incense of the priesthood of the New Covenant or the New Testament. Is that clear? Okay. Again, another one in Isaiah 19. It says, In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt. Okay. And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and they'll make a sacrifice and an offering. Same thing. Can this be pagan? No. Can it be Jewish? No. Right? Again, because it's the Egyptians or Gentiles, it cannot be Jewish. Okay? And obviously this talks about the Christian church. So these are prophecies about the liturgy, the priesthood, the Eucharist, the sacrifices, all in the New Testament. Okay? St. Paul, Hebrews 13, he says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Who serves the tabernacle? The Jews. But the Jews cannot eat, cannot partake of what we eat from our altar because it is the Christian altar. Okay? In addition to this, okay, so, so the first, uh, uh, this, I can, I can speak an hour and a half just on this, by the way. This comparative theology and going to the Greek and stuff, and like, and they, we can speak about it forever, but it's not the objective, okay, of this talk. But I wanted you to give a, have an idea because what happens in the Protestant world, like if you actually read your Bible, who is the Bible translated by? The, the which language is the Bible written from or in? Okay, more precise. The New Testament is written originally in what language? Greek. Okay. Bravo. Excellent. Okay. The Greek is translated into Arabic, into French, into English, into a bunch of things. So the Bible that we read is a translated version of the Greek. Who made the very good and beautiful effort to translate these translations? The Protestant world. So actually they're very good at this stuff in the sense that they have money and they have time. So they've done all the translations. In English, like, so we read New King James, we can read the NIV, we can read the RSV version. Okay, there's, there's like 20 something English versions of the Bible. 20 something English versions of the Bible. When you read these versions, instead of, so the Greek word is presbyter, okay? or presbyteros is the Greek word, which is translated presbyter, which means priest. When a Protestant guy comes to translate it, he does not translate it as priest. He translates it as elder. Okay, that's why we see the word elder all the time in scripture. But what is meant here is priesthood. Again, again, we can speak about this forever. Okay? So that's why I'm clarifying with these Old Testament uh, prophecies and so many examples 
I can give, but, but I won't because it's not the purpose, okay? The other thing, when you speak to Protestants, the other thing that they, because they, when you start unfolding these ideas to them, they realize that they can't escape it, okay? And then they start saying, yeah, but the word elder means this, whatever, okay, whatever. We discuss about this. And then the second thing that they come up with is, yeah, but this was only meant for the apostles. It's not something meant to be given from one generation to the other. Which makes no sense whatsoever. Any, with all due respect, any, I, don't, I don't mean this, to, to, I don't mean to, to say it in a bad way. Because why would God give the Holy Spirit for the priesthood, for the apostles only, and then obviously he gave them the authority only for that generation? Because they become the leaders of, who are the apostles are the leaders of what? The church. Is the church supposed to last only for the first century? Or until the second coming? So obviously that authority was given from one generation to the next. Okay, And even in scripture there are examples of this. So here St. Paul speaks to Timothy. Timothy is a bishop and he's the bishop of Ephesus. Okay, and So St. Paul, the way they would ordain priests is that they laid their hands on their heads okay, and pray and then they would blow the Holy Spirit in their mouth. So here, St. Paul tells Timothy, Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And here he was speaking about the gift of the priesthood, okay, because he was the bishop of Ephesus. And then St. Paul also said to Timothy, right, do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins, keep yourself pure. What he was telling him here is when you come to ordain bishops, do not lay your hands on them hastily. That's why earlier in the epistle, if you remember, if you read the epistles of Paul to Timothy, he was giving him the characteristics of a bishop and of a deacon. He has to be married to one wife, right? He has to be good temper. He does not, he cannot be love, love like a, be a lover of money. And he puts all of this list because there's an authority that this could be transmitted to other people as well. And here in Acts 14.23, very clearly, it says, so when they had appointed, again, so look back, like if you have to like, do proper research, how the wording of the translation could actually change things. So this is the King James Version. The King James Version says, and when they had ordained them, elders, meaning priests, in every church, okay, the New King James says they had appointed elders in every church okay? and prayed with fasting the commandment of the Lord whom, in whom they have believed. The word ordained and appointed do not mean the same thing. So I could appoint Sylvia to be the servant of discipleship. I do not ordain Sylvia to be the servant or a servant of discipleship. I only ordain a priest or a deacon. You guys get it? Okay. There's actually in Romans 15, I'm not, I'm not going to go through this because it's long and it's going to be boring. In Romans 15, very clearly, verses 15 and 16, St. Paul speaks that he's a priest and he ministers as a priest. And in the English translation, instead of saying it's, he's ministering as a priest, he says that he ministers, meaning he just serves. 
for, like the, the, the priesthood is actually hidden in the translation, okay? But this, this is, again, not our subject today, okay? So it's clear that the priests, and it's clear that there's succession there, okay? St. Ignatius of Antioch is one of the church fathers. So when we, again, we want to, so, so let's say, we both read the Bible, right? I have an understanding of the verse I just read. You have a different understanding. Let's say it speaks about the Eucharist. How do I know which understanding is proper? Or which one is good? How do I know? Can someone tell me? Yes. Okay, so I can go to the Church Fathers, which, which is what we're doing now. But if I take it even and enlarge that idea. So, so very simply. So okay, I'll give you an example, which I already gave most probably. A dude called Zwingli, and this is real, okay? So, uh, so this, this guy is the first guy that said that the Eucharist is just a symbol. It's not real body and real blood, okay? So how do I know that he, he is, he, he's not right? Maybe he is right. Oh, obviously he's not, and there's many reasons in scripture. But actually the answer is, is quite easy, okay? So if I want to know what is true, very simply, I go back to the first, second, third century, fourth century. I look into all of Christianity throughout the world, what they were doing. And we have hundreds, if not thousands of books that show the faith of the church in these centuries. So when I have John 6 and 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 speak to me about the Eucharist, that it's real body, real blood, right? And then I see the church fathers, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th century, by the way, all the way until the 16th century, everybody in the entire world says there is a liturgy, it is real body, it is real blood. And then a dude in the 16th century comes up and says, oh no, it's just a symbol. So you're like, whoa, wait a second. The church for 1,500 years have been living this. Who are you to say opposite to this? So it's very easy. I just go backwards and check. Okay. So here's St. Ignatius. St. Ignatius, by the way, the, there's a tradition that says that he is, you know when Christ brought a little child on his lap? There's one tradition that said Ignatius was this child. Okay. So St. Ignatius died in 108 A.D. So he's like right after the apostles. You cannot have a church father like him and a few others. They're called the apostolic fathers. They're just right after the apostles themselves. He says this, see that all, you all follow the bishop, even as Jesus Christ does the father and the presbytery, meaning the priesthood, as you would the apostles and reverence the deacons as being the institution of God. So we already see here, there's the bishop, there's the presbytery, the priest, and there's also the deacon, okay? Then he says, let no man do anything connecting with the church without the bishop. Okay, and then he goes on, okay? Here he says, wherever the bishop shall appear, there let the multitude of the people also be. Even as wherever Jesus Christ is, there's the Catholic church. So where Christ is, his body is. So where the bishop is, the church is. This is the authority of the bishop. You know, and the authority of the bishop, when Sayyidina comes, you know, we, like, you know, we have fun together, like we high five and like we push each other, whatever. Taman, when I'm playing, when I'm not playing, I have these big eyes, I know, right? But when it comes to Sayyidina, right? 
if you see even the priests when they when they they come to salute the bishop what do they do we go and we go like this right so so we like kind of touch to touch the floor and we kiss his cross and we kiss his hands this this is a lazy matanya okay so so it's actually supposed to be a, a matanya but not a matanya of worship obviously there's matanyas of worship that happens only to god and there's matanyas of respect that are given to the saints and to the bishops okay but I, just that is part of the ritual that makes us understand who is the bishop so the Ignatius says where the bishop is the church is the bishop is not there there's no church so before we had a bishop our bishop was the pope himself you guys understand this is how important the presence of the bishop is okay here saint ignatius again he says this let all things therefore be done by you with good order in christ then he says let the laity like so the lay people be subject to the deacons the deacons to the presbyters the priests the presbyters to the bishop the bishop to christ as he is to the father so there's a hierarchy in the church the highest order of the church overall 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 is who who's the highest order of the church which you all gotta get maybe right who's the higher order of the church yeah of course christ but i'm talking, I'm talking uh, you guys you guys are smart like you guys are smart right? yeah okay right after christ the pope hmm? that's one of the differences between the catholic church and the orthodox churches can you raise your hand if you know? Yes. The bishops, that, there's a name for that. Hmm. The Holy Synod. Okay. So the highest authority in the church is the Holy Synod. What is the Holy Synod? The Holy Synod is all of the bishops of the church gathered together. They gather together once, twice a year. This is the highest authority in the church. It's higher than the Pope. Which is a really beautiful thing. Why is that? Because if you have a Pope that is messed up, or was ordained wrong, whatever it was, or has weird ideas, or, or he's a sinner, so he starts drifting, which could happen, by the way, and it did happen in history, because the church is at the end human, okay? The church is still protected. Why? Because the ultimate authority, the ultimate authority is the Holy Synod, all the bishops together. So it's not an individual that does whatever he wants to do. The rest of the bishops, they keep him in check. So after the Holy Spirit, it is the Pope. And after the Pope, so the Pope is the leader of the bishops. And then, you know what a diocese is? You know what a diocese is? Who knows what a, who's, what a diocese is? Okay. Can someone, Marina, can you tell me what a diocese is? Sorry? Okay, that, that place, so it's a region. Okay, so, so what's the difference between a diocese and a church? Or a parish? Very good, okay. So a diocese is usually a region, it could also be a city. The diocese has a bishop on it. And under the diocese, there's many, what we call parishes. We call them churches, but they should be called parishes, okay? For example, in our case, the bishop is Bishop Bullis. The name of the diocese is? So it has a specific boundary. So 
it's Ottawa, Montreal, and Eastern Canada. So the boundaries from Kingston, Ontario, all the way to Halifax, Prince Edward Island, and all the stuff. Okay, so this is the entire diocese. In the diocese, that there's about 25 churches, about 20 something priests. Well, I don't remember the number. Okay, that's the diocese. Now, within the parish of St. George and St. Joseph, within this diocese, there's five priests and so on. So all of these priests in these different parishes, they all report to Ambabulis. Ambabulis says something, it's done. You guys get it? So here he says what? The laity, they report to the deacons, which means the full deacons. Right? That's not like the saltos. Or, I'm talking about full deacons here, the ones that give the blood. Okay, Full deacons, then the deacons... To the priest, the priest to the bishop. Okay? This is 108 AD. So when I look, and, and there's so many examples that I'm not going to go through, right? But it gives you an idea how the idea of priesthood and the bishops are real. Okay? Number three is confession. Obviously, I already spoke about this verse. So when he said, receive the Holy Spirit, but I hate the rest. And then he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are Retained. The priests are or are given the authority to remit or to retain the sins. Obviously, a priest only retains the sin when the person is not repentant. It's not okay, the priest is in a bad mood today, right? Oh, I don't like this guy, right? So you know what? I'm remitting, I'm not remitting your sins. Like that's not how it works, right? So it can only be done according to God's laws. So why do we confess to the priests? Again, we can go on about this forever. But we confess to the priest because the priest is the sort of a P presence of Christ. Okay. So so in, in, in confession, you're actually confessing to Christ Himself in the presence of the priest. So the one of the most beautiful things I've seen in my life is when someone comes to confession completely ignores me and says and says Christ forgive me because and then the person goes on you understand that you are in the mystery of confession in the presence of the priest other people don't get that and forgive me so I have confession but instead of actually praying and offering repentance and examining myself before confession I'm playing on my phone I'm texting I, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to go to confession and I don't even advise, the, like we take it like for granted, maybe because it's free, mm -hmm. we take it for granted, I don't know, right? But it's so inappropriate, so inappropriate. I'm going to meet Christ in the mystery of confession, which remits my sins, which brings me, you know, in unity with God. And then the next step is the Eucharist. And we take this for granted all the time. Like Pope Shenouda, may God rest his soul, he used to confess to a priest. So, so he used to confess to a normal priest. Abu Michael Ibrahim, right? So Pope Shenouda, listen to this. So Pope Shenouda, okay, who, who's not only a Pope, but it's like he's Pope Shenouda, right? Like he's like, he's like, when he would confess to, to a normal Abuna, he would sit on the floor and remove his bishopric like hat, whatever that's called, in the Amma, right? And he sits on the floor because he understands he's at the feet of Christ and he confesses. The priest gives him a solution. He sits back on his chair, puts back his emma, and then he's, 
Like he goes at it, okay? So, so, so this is what happens in confession. And Christ wants it to be that way. Again, we can speak about this why or why, but again, it's not the objective of today, okay? So Oregon, 244 AD. So again, going back to the church fathers, Oregon is more of a scholar, okay, who was fantastic, by the way, anyways. He says, the remission of sins through penance or repentance occurs when the person, the sinner, does not shrink or does not keep away from declaring his sin to a priest. Since Cyprian of Carthage, of how much greater faith and solitary fear are they who confess their sins to priests of God in a straightforward manner and so on. In James, there is a verse that confuses people, and they confuse Protestants all the time, by the way, and sometimes maybe even Orthodox could be confused, where it speaks that here in verse 16, it says, confess your trespasses to one another. Why does it say this? This is very important, okay? So believe it or not, as much as we complain today that, oh, I don't want to confess in front of Abuna and all of this stuff, you know how confession used to happen early in the early centuries? They used to confess publicly in front of everyone. It's like, like me, I could take up a microphone right now or tell you like all of my sins publicly. So like we're gathered for liturgy, okay? And then we, we confess the sins and then the bishop is there and then he absolves everybody. That's why the like, prayer of absolution is in the liturgy. So imagine that. So here in this actual uh, few verses in that passage, you'll notice if you, if you study it, which I want to do now, but it speaks about the presence of the priest and the priest is anointing the sick, okay, with this other mystery of, of the uh, anointment, right? And then he says this confess which passes to one another. Right? So it's, it is in the presence of your priest, but it happened publicly. And that's why he says to one another. Right? So St. Irenaeus of Lyons says this. He's speaking about certain women at the time. Look at what he says. He says, some of these women make a public confession. So some women, women were fine with a public confession. But others are ashamed to, this, to do this. And in silence as if withdrawing from themselves the hope of the life of God. So he's saying some used to confess publicly and they're fine, and others chose to not do it publicly, but by doing this, they withdrew right themselves from the hope of the life. Because that's how it used to happen. So again, confession is done in the presence of the priest. Okay? The malehood, I'm not going to speak about it a lot because it's a whole topic on its own, but it's very simple and I said it before. God himself, as the Holy Trinity, God has no gender. God creates humanity in two genders. Okay? These two genders, Adam and Eve, both of them messed up. Now, God wants to save humanity to bring them back to where they belong. So, he heals both genders. The female gender was healed through St. Mary. So that's why St. Mary is called the second Eve. So the first Eve disobeyed, the second Eve obeyed. So Archangel Gabriel came to her, announced her that she will bear Christ. 
St. Mary wants to be a nun, by the way. Wants to consecrate her virginity to God. That's why she responds, how can this be if I do not know a man? Meaning that I do not want to know a man. And she remained ever virgin. So her and St. Joseph were just betrothed. They were only engaged, not married. Again, a different story. Okay. And she obeyed, and not, not only in this, but in many things. And she suffered so much because her own son, who happens to be God as well, is suffering a lot in front of her. Huge deal. So she brought back, or she healed disobedience to make it obedience. Okay? So Christ was incarnate as a male because he fulfilled this, the role of salvation for the male. Because the male's role is to offer himself as a sacrifice for his wife. In the same way, Christ offers himself as a sacrifice for his wife. Who is his wife? The church. That's why the priest, again, he is the presence of Christ, who is a male, and the priest becomes the presence of Christ, who marries his wife, who is the church. So the priest marries the church, in the same way the bishop marries the church, right? So it's this whole balance between the male and the female. And therefore, theologically, the priest has to be male because he makes Christ present. He cannot be female. There's a lot of room for female in the church. And it, it, like, you know, like we see it more and more and it's beautiful. But when it, and it, it can even be, by the way, there, there's some, some um, dioceses that they even have female chanters. Okay. Like that, that actually exists in the Coptic Church today, right? But when it comes to the priesthood, it is in, an impossibility because it is the presence of Christ, okay? Fatherhood. I don't have time for questions, but yes. <laughs> Go ahead. If it's long, I won't answer. If it's quick, I'll answer. That, that's a long answer. So we can do it another time, okay? So forgive me because I, I still have, and I, I actually have to leave now, I'm, I'm already late. Um, the fatherhood of Christ. In Matthew 23, it says that you should call no one father except God the Father. Protestants jump on this. See, you should not call anybody father. So you should not call the priest father. But does that mean I should not call my biological father father? Right? It's not to be taken literally, it actually means something else, which I will not go through. And the evidence for this very quickly in the Bible, St. Paul says what? St. Paul tells the Corinthians, Yet you do not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. So here St. Paul is the spiritual father of those people. Okay? St. John Chrysostom says, why do we call the priest father? Obviously because... so. God is the ultimate father. God the father, God the father specifically, is the ultimate father, right? God shares many things with humans. He shares and he's also the mother, the ultimate mother, okay? I, all kind of love is in Christ or in God, right? So God shares his fatherhood with us and his motherhood with us. And when it comes to the fatherhood or it's bio, the biological fatherhood, or the spiritual father, fatherhood like myself, okay? So St. John Chrysostom says that why, why do we call, you know, the, uh, the father, father? Because, because uh, in baptism, what is reborn in baptism? 
you, right? The soul of the Christian is reborn in baptism. So the pre at the hands of the priest, your soul is born. Right? At the hand of the priest, your soul is healed. And there's guidance there. And therefore, the priest has the responsibility to be a spiritual father. And that's why we call him father. Okay? And that's why we kiss the hands of the priest. By the way, we all usually like play like, I don't know, a certain game. We, most of the time, people don't understand what they're doing. But the reality, what we're supposed to do, like I explained to the bishop earlier, you're supposed to kiss the cross and the hand of the priest as well. Not only the bishop. But the priest, like, you know, they remove their hands because we're... You know, try to be humble, although we're not. You know, like we play games, but the real no, it's just uncomfortable. Okay, but for me, at least. But the idea is that you're supposed to do this. Why do you do this? Yeah, the priest holds the body of Christ, all of the stuff. But more importantly, I'm kissing the hands of who? Christ. Remember the story of that? The hand of Christ is superposed over the hand of the priest, and at the same time, by the way, something that. Is really above your heads because we, you, me too, because we're too young. Earlier on, like you must have your great grandfather, maybe even your grandfather would do this. They would kiss the hands of their own fathers, biological fathers, biological mothers too. Out of respect, they would actually kiss their hands. And this is where the tradition comes from. And it goes on until now. Okay. This I'm going to skip. So let's skip it. I'll say it quickly. Uh, one of the things that the rituals are super nice about in, in the church. So if you notice, like the priest usually holds a cross, okay? And let's say I'm praying the liturgy and I'm coming. So at this point, I'm, I'm the presence of Christ, right? So, so the priest does the sign of the cross and he blesses the people, right? As soon as, and let's say I'm holding my cross in my hand. If I'm babulis, would walk in here right now, all of a sudden you will see me taking my cross in my pocket. A priest does not hold his cross, which is a sign of authority, in the presence of the bishop. The Pope comes in, bishop puts his cross in the pocket. Okay? That's what happens. So you will never see, by the way, a priest praying the liturgy in the presence of a bishop. If a bishop is there, the bishop prays the liturgy. The priests help him. It does not happen that a priest, that bishop is just chilling, right? Or on the side while the priests are the ones praying. Because he becomes the main presence of Christ. It's the same thing with the Pope. The Pope becomes the main presence of Christ. And at some point, even like if we're holding the cross in the liturgy, at some point in the liturgy, when we come, you know, at the end, we, we come and we say, Irini Pasi, or peace be with all, and we hold the altar, and we just go like this, and we don't do the sign of the cross. You notice this? Why do we do this? Because at that point, the Holy Spirit came down, and the body or the, the, the bread became the body of Christ. So the body, Christ Himself, is also on the altar. So, as a teaching mechanism, the priest does not do the sign of the cross. It's not a big deal if he does it, but he wants to teach the congregation that, that the ritual wants to teach the congregation that. Christ himself in that bread in which you're about to partake of in a bit is the one sending his own peace. You guys get it? And a bunch of things like that. You'll never find the, the priest saying Irini Pasi again while the bishop is present. Okay? Now, these 
three terms mean different things. Democracy, we all know what it is, right? Right, so who, who, who rules in a democracy? It is the people that vote, they elect people, and then these people that they vote, they run the, day, the thing or the government, but they're voted by the people, so the people actually have the power. Autocracy means there's one individual that has the power. Okay? The church is not an autocracy and is not a democracy. The church is theocratic. It's a theocracy. What is a theocracy? Theocracy means the one person that rules is God. And every decision is based on the will of God in the church. So someone comes and says, Oh, but I think we should change this in the church. Until God says so, <laughs> it's not going to happen. Okay? It doesn't matter what Abuna Gabriel thinks or his opinions are. If they go against God's will or God's like dogma that he has provided to the church, it is absolutely meaningless. It's a theocracy. You guys get this? And therefore the authority, again. So Christ in, here, speaking again to the twelve. So surely I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. In Matthew 16, he says it to St. Peter. In John 20, we read about the priesthood. Okay, it's all over the place. As well, in St. Paul, you see it very clearly. In 1 Corinthians, St. Paul excommunicates someone from the church. What does that mean? The person is not allowed to partake of the Eucharist anymore. Because he lived in sin, he wasn't repentant. So that's how he led him to repent. He told him, no communion for you. Right? And then in 2 Corinthians, because the guy repented, he brought him back into the church. So St. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, for even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority as apostles, which the Lord gave us for edification. So the authority is not, is not given to annoy someone, but to edify the church. Okay? And not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed. And glory be to God forever and ever. Amen. This talk was brought to you by Upper Room Media. We hope that this talk has, through the grace of God, touched your heart. And we pray that it will not only inform you, but will also transform you and your life with Christ.